Well, back in August and September, the beginning of September, I began teaching through the book of Exodus on Wednesday nights. We haven't made it very far. Uh, perhaps, perhaps I'll finish before my youngest graduates from high school. We'll see. Uh, but we'll continue this morning. So if you can turn to Exodus chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter, 11 through 25. And if you haven't been here on Wednesday nights, perhaps you're new to the church, perhaps you're visiting, that's okay. I'll catch you up. I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version. We saw that Exodus starts out with a family, the family of Jacob, also known as the family of Israel. They have moved to Goshen in Egypt because Joseph has ended up there. He was sold into slavery by his brothers and he rose to a position of power in Egypt, provided for his family. God was working through him. And it starts out with 70 people, just a family. And then they quickly multiply. And then in Exodus 1.8, it says that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he was afraid of what was now the nation of Israel. He was afraid of them. They were multiplying greatly. And he put in place a new policy, a new domestic policy to deal with these foreigners that are in his midst. He enslaves them. He puts them into brutal, hard labor. He treats them extremely poorly. But no matter what he does, he can't stomp them out. Because God is at work. That's what we saw. God is at work. So, he puts in place a new plan. Well, I'll kill the Hebrew baby boys. I'll kill the Hebrew baby boys. Maybe that will stop them. And this wicked edict is where chapter 1 ends. And then, in chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, the, verse ten, the first 10 verses, it goes from this macro approach. We're looking at what's happening. We're flying over the entire nation of Israel. And then we zone all the way down in to one family. A mother a father, a son. And what happens with this one little baby boy who is supposed to be thrown into the Nile? But he's not. He's not. He is preserved by the faith of his mother and the courage of his sister. We see the preservation of God in this little baby boy's life. That little baby boy is Moses as his Egyptian adoptive mother would name him. He's weaned by his mother and then he's raised as an Egyptian prince and he's given all the benefits and training of the royal house of Egypt, as A.W. Pink says. Well, there's much more we could say, but that's the very quick catch-up of what's happened thus far. And so this morning we're going to go through the end of chapter 2. And if you would follow with me, uh, starting in verse 11, I'll read through the end of the chapter. Exodus 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, 
Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the, land of the, out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. Well, we are wired for anticipation. We're wired for anticipation. We get excited about what's coming next. What's the next thing down, coming down the road? That's why we have teaser trailers for movies. Uh, that's why at the end of superhero films, you have to stay to the end of the credits, or at least you should stay to the end of the credits, because there might be something coming next. You could see what's going to be in the next film. What's the next chapter in the story? When I order something online, I need to put my phone number in so I can get that sweet, sweet status update about what's happening. Ooh, they created a shipping label. It's almost here. Children are the same way. My children often watch out the front window. If you have had the, uh, well, I don't know, if you've had the experience, we'll say, of, of being in our home, uh, you know there's this awkward moment when you walk by our front kitchen window and my children are just staring at you as you go up to the front door uh, because they are excited for you to come into our house. There's anticipation. And they're watching every single car that comes by and they're waiting for that one car to turn right at the stop sign and then turn right again into our driveway. And every single car that goes the other way is a little bit of a disappointment because it's not the expected people. It's not what's expected. There's something else coming. Something else is coming. And our passage this morning deals with anticipation, the deliverance of Israel from bondage. That's what we're waiting for. The people are stuck in bondage. We're waiting for them to be free, finally free. We want it to happen. They've been in bondage for a long time. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Moses as he comes out of the royal house of Egypt and he looks out over the land. And so this morning I want, to see th- want us to see three things. I want us to see the attempts of Moses to help the nation of Israel. And then I want us to look at the actions of a desperate and helpless people. And finally, the response of a mighty and loving God. So we'll start with the attempts of Moses to help the nation of Israel. Well, he is unwilling to sit idly by. 
If you look at verse 11, we see one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. Stephen tells us more about this in Acts chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. It says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Moses is in the place of power. Now, he's in his prime. 40 years old, that's a, that's a good spot to be. He's been trained. He's in with the royal family. He's has the wisdom of Egypt. He's been trained in warfare. He's a prince. Josephus says that he was in line for the throne to become Pharaoh. Others disagree with that. But he, he's in a place of power. But he can't stay there in the royal house. He has to go out. One day, he is led out to look on the sufferings of his brothers. And what does he find? What is the condition of Israel? He finds the people burdened. He finds the people oppressed. He finds the people enslaved. And, and he probably would have known this, right? Because this policy, is it's been around since he was born. He's, he's a recipient of this policy. He's in the royal house of Egypt because of the wicked laws of Pharaoh. And then he sees, again, we see this macro approach. He's looking out over the people, but he ends up again with one man. He ends up with one Hebrew. He sees one of his brothers being beaten by an Egyptian, probably one of these taskmasters. And he knows in his heart that this is wrong. He knows. He knows that there is justice and that this isn't right. This is unfair. And he wants to respond. And we're the same way. We are wired, just like we are wired for anticipation, we are wired with a sense of justice because the law of God is written on our hearts because we're created in the image of God. And he is a just God. And so Moses sees this and it is unjust. And we see the same thing. We look out at our world and we say, what is this world coming to? People take to the streets. Countries go to war over the sense of injustice. This isn't right. This isn't the way it should be. You shouldn't be doing that. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to use what power I have to stop you. You look at what's currently happening over in Israel and Palestine. Now, there are people on completely opposite sides of what is going on there. But... One thing that if you went to them and you said, well, what are you going for? They'd say, I'm, I'm looking for justice. Their sense of justice is completely different, but it is innate within us that there is a sense of justice and fairness. And so that's what Moses sees. It's wrong what is happening to this Hebrew. The Egyptian taskmaster should not be beating him. One really clear way to know this is uh, take some children who perhaps struggle with math, ask them to divide a cookie, and every single one of them becomes a mathematician, right? <laughs> you owe me an extra eighth inch of cookie, right? That's not equally divided. I can't do the math problem, but I can divide that cookie. They know it. It's fair. That's not fair. You got more than me. And so Moses, in his desire to deal with this fairness, he looks this way and that in verse 12, and seeing no one, he strikes down the Egyptian and he hides him in the sand. Now, commentators disagree on whether or not what Moses did was right. Depending on who you read, some will say, well, Moses 
sees the injustice. His desire to protect and care for the people of Israel is good, but his action in killing this Egyptian was not right. And others say, no, no, no. He was justified in doing this, but nobody disagrees with the desire. His desire is good. His desire is to free a bondaged and oppressed people. That's what he wants. But are they free after his action? Are the people free this one day going out and seeing this one Egyptian and liberating him for the moment? Is he free? There were most likely around two million or a little bit less, uh, fewer Israelites at this time. Uh, by the time they leave uh, and they finally come out of Egypt, most people say there's between two million and two and a half million. So Moses needs to make way more trips out to look on the burdens of Israel. We see at the end of verse 12 that he hides him in the sand. And then at the beginning of verse 13, he goes out again. The next day, he is still drawn out to look on the oppression of the people of Israel. And now he sees two Hebrews. He sees two Hebrews. And he identifies. He acts as a judge and he identifies that one of them is in the wrong. And so he says to him, why do you strike your companion? And you, you get this sense here that, what are you doing? You two should be getting along. You two should be working together because Egypt is the problem. You're oppressed by Egypt and now you're, you're oppressing one another. Why would, you, why would you do this? We should be incredulous. Whatever issues you have with one another should pale in comparison. But they don't listen to him. Instead, the one who's in the wrong answers back in verse 14, who made you a prince and a judge over us? And then he challenges him, do you mean to kill me if you kill the Egyptian? And the thing is known. The thing is known. The two things that Stephen mentions about Moses, his strength and his wisdom, which God is going to use mightily to bring, Egypt, bring Israel out of slavery, out of exile, they're ultimately not sufficient here to save the people. He spent two days trying two days to look out for Israel and to help them, acting as a king in striking down and defending, acting as a judge. And in two days, he sailed. And what is the result? The result is that when Pharaoh hears of it, he seeks to kill Moses. And Moses isn't strong enough to stand up to Pharaoh. And so he has to run away. He has to care for him. He's got to look after himself here. He doesn't have a mighty army that he's able to draw from. He has himself. And so he flees to the land of Midian. Well, there was so much anticipation built up. You know, okay, God rescued this one little baby boy. We saw before that, that Moses' mother and father, they had faith. They somehow knew that Moses was going to do great things for God. And so then we're like, yes. All right, he's finally here on the scene. He's 40 years old. He's able to act. And we're left with a sense of, well, that, that didn't go the way we expected it to go. We thought that he was going to be successful. What, Moses is supposed to be the, the one who rose to all this power and might, and he was going to liberate the people and just march him right out of there. As soon as he finally came to that point of power and strength, he was able to do it. And so this anticipation leaves us wanting. We're still looking for that next car to come around around the corner. What does this tell us? 
It tells us that only God can free Israel from bondage in His timing. In His timing. We have to see the total and utter helplessness of the nation of Israel. They are trapped. They are trapped. Exodus 2 shows us that the guy that we expected to save them, he's just, he's just not enough. Not on his own. He's not enough on his own. We need to consider this. Israel is a type. What happens with them tells us so much about our own state and our own condition. These are God's covenant people, a real historical people. And 1 Corinthians 10.3 tells us that these things took place as examples for us. So we're to learn from them. Well, people all over the world are attempting to use their own strength and wisdom to solve their problems. People in this room are doing the same thing. You might say, I'm not doing that. Or you might say, I'm not oppressed. I am just fine. I'm not a slave to anyone or anything. I'm my own man. I do what I want. I'm free. Well, it points to a spiritual reality in our own hearts. We are slaves to sin. We are oppressed by sin. Jesus speaks of this in John 8. In verse 31, He says, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then the people around Him respond, and they say, We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. You know, they're thinking temporally, I'm not, like, we're not, we're not slaves. We're free. Jesus says then, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And people try to free themselves in all sorts of ways. I'll be satisfied when I get that next promotion. I'm not satisfied right now. But I will be if I get that next promotion, or maybe if I get a different boss, or they're a little bit kinder to me, or you know, perhaps if they just listen to my ideas, or if I just meet that special someone. I haven't met them yet, but if I just meet that special someone, then then I'll be satisfied. I'll be free from whatever is is just keeping me from being satisfied. Or maybe you have that special someone, and now it's well. If I just can get married, if I can get to that, that next spot, or if we can have kids, or if we can retire, and there's always that next thing that just keeps you from being satisfied because nothing will do it. You're in bondage to the sense of the next thing is going to be better. Maybe I can distract myself with alcohol or substance abuse. If I can just get my mind off of what's going on, the world's a mess. I just need to get my mind off of what's going on. Or my kids, if they're obedient and respectful, then everything's fine in my life. As long as they are successful and as long as everybody can look at how neat and tidy my family is, then I'm fine. But as soon as that falls apart, oh, then I, I, I'm stuck again until it gets better. People need to see that I have it sorted out. C.S. Lewis says that we are blind to our true need. He writes, there are all sorts of things in this world that promise to satisfy you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. He says even the best things, satisfaction will evade us because we are created in God's image to glorify Him, to enjoy him forever. We're trying to solve a problem of the soul with answers of the flesh. 
And it's never going to work. It's never going to work. We'll remain stuck in bondage, just like the people of Israel in chapter 2. It's Moses going out and looking and being unable to free the people of Israel. The law of God is written on our hearts and it convicts us of this. That we keep trying, but we're not satisfied. But we suppress, we stamp down the truth in unrighteousness. We anticipate that human ingenuity will solve our problems, but there's no wisdom or strength, there's no power, there is no person except for one in history that has ever been able to free a sinner from bondage. If we're truly honest with ourselves, we should be able to look and acknowledge with the Apostle Paul that none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. A man at work recently came up to my desk. This was early in October, uh, shortly after the, the attack in Israel. And he just, before he, he spoke to me, he just sighed and he said, why can't we stop killing each other? And I didn't have a good answer for him at the time because he quickly moved on. And, um, but I thought later, why can't we start loving each other? That should be the easy thing, right? That should be the easy thing and we can't even do that. Another man I knew tried to convince me that the world is getting better. He's like, we're getting better. We're evolving into a, a, a better people the, as a whole. That's what we're moving towards. History is moving towards getting better. And I just said, look around you. Or better yet, look within you or look within me. It's not getting better. It's not getting better. We can't stop sinning because sin came into the world. It describes the nature of man as foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures in Titus 3.3. We spend our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And what do we earn at the end of this slavery apart from Christ? The wages of sin is death. You see that in Romans 6. Well, Exodus is all about God taking a people who cannot save themselves and delivering them from exile and bringing them to Himself. But if we, if we just cut out this portion of Scripture and we jump to Moses parting the Red Sea or performing all these mighty works before Pharaoh, well, we would still see that God is the one working, but we would see, wow, that Moses, he really is something. He's powerful. He's mighty. Look at that. But this section in chapter 2 really shows us the weakness of humanity apart from God. It shows us the weakness. Now, I'm not going to cover Moses' time in Midian. I will say that it is a, I believe, a reprieve for Moses from God. He experiences goodness and God takes care of him while he is in exile in Midian. But I would like to move down to verse 23. And we turn now to the actions of a desperate and a helpless people. Here in verse 23 is the first reference to the people of Israel calling out to God for help. This doesn't mean that no one did before. We know there were faithful people among, among the Hebrews, among Israel, the midwives being some of them, and others, there would have been others. But as a nation, as a people, they, they weren't calling out to God. And so three things happened with the people of Israel here in verse 23. Three things, these actions of a desperate and helpless people. And we'll move through them perhaps a little bit quicker. One, they came to an end of themselves. 
The people of Israel came to an end of themselves. What do I mean by this? I mean that if they knew, if they were to receive any help, they knew it had to come from outside themselves. It was not going to be from among them that some man or woman or group was going to rise up and deliver them out. This help had to come from someplace else. Well, people ask for help when they really need it, don't they? If we don't need help, we usually don't ask for it. Uh, perhaps, you know, you've been, something's been going on in your life, somebody from church or a friend or a family member, they offer to help you, and I think we can, most of us could probably fill in what happens next. We say, no, 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 that, that's okay. We'll be fine. We got it. We're okay. It's going to be all right. I'll think, I think we'll manage. And then you go on and perhaps you manage by the grace of God, and perhaps you don't. But when you really need help, when you really, truly need help, you seek it out. You go and you look for help. You don't necessarily wait for help to come and find you. When I was in college, I was sitting in my apartment, I was studying, and I had the door open as I'm sitting there. All of a sudden, I hear kind of a strange noise. Sometimes it takes a moment for your mind to process something that's happening around you. And as I processed, I realized that there was somebody was screaming for help outside. I mean, they were screaming at the top of their lungs for help. Help, 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 and just crying and crying. And I was looking around, scanning, trying to figure out where this is. I'm headed out the door, and I, I spot it. There's a boy. There's a little boy. And he has climbed up one of the soccer nets in the field behind my apartment. And he's hanging upside down by his foot. He's all caught in the net. And his foot probably hurt, right? Because that net's going to bind up and it's going to hurt. And he couldn't get himself down. Well... Thankfully, there are more athletic people in that building than me. And out of the building comes tearing one of the soccer players that lived upstairs. And he vaults the fence. He runs over to this little boy and he frees him from the soccer net. And he runs off to find his mother, his father, somebody else. He runs off home. He knew he needed help. And so he called out for it. He wasn't waiting there for someone to come along and and just say, Hey, can I get you down? You know, do you need anything? No, 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 I'm fine. I'll, I'll figure it out eventually. My foot's turning black, but it's going to be okay. I'll manage. No, he knew. And because he knew, he cried out with a loud voice that somebody somewhere might come and free him. And so what do we have to do? We come before Almighty God and we say, You are holy and perfect. And woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, from the prophet Isaiah. You say, I'm a sinner, and I need help. I come to an end of myself. And the people groaned. They groaned. They saw their condition and the hopelessness of their state, and they groaned. Their hearts are broken. Ezekiel 21, God says that there is going to be judgment on the people of Israel for worshiping false gods. And Ezekiel tells the people, As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief. And when they say to you, Why do you groan? You shall say, Because of the news that is coming. 
Well, what is the news that is coming for the people of Israel here in Exodus chapter 2? It's more slavery. And, and what's coming next year? It's more slavery. You know, one king had died at the beginning of, of verse 23 and another one has come into place and maybe they thought, well, if we just get the old party out and we can put the new party in, maybe they'll be more in line with what I think and my life will be better. But it doesn't matter who is in office for these people. It's just slavery year in and year out until they die. And so they groan and they cry out for help. They have broken hearts, bitter with grief. And they do cry out. They do. They cry out. And it's not a hopeless cry, is it? They cry out to the One who can help them. There is hope for those who cry out to God. David says in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your steadfast love. According to Your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Or think of the blind beggar in Luke 18.38. As Jesus draws near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. If you have come to an end of yourself and you are groaning over sin, you will not be hindered from calling out to God. You will know and you will call until He answers. It doesn't matter if somebody tries to get in your way. Why why would you want to do that? Why would you want to become a Christian? Why in the world? You're going to church? Are you kidding me? You're worshiping God? You're praying? And you're going to say, no, I need a Savior and I'm going to keep following Him and He's going to answer me because there is hope. That's what Exodus shows us. God responds to the cry of His people. Matthew Henry says of this, at last they, speaking of the people of Israel, began to think of God under their troubles. It's a sign that the Lord is coming towards us with deliverance when He inclines and enables us to cry to Him for it. He's the one who enables us to cry out for help. He's the one who does it. And when He enables you to cry out, He is near because He will answer the cries of His people. He will draw near to them. He will seek you out. And so that's what we turn to now. The response of God. So we saw Moses, he went out and he attempted to help the people of Israel and God was going to use him mightily to draw them out. But here we see the weakness of man. There was more preparation for Moses to be done. And so the people, seeing their desperation, they come to an end of themselves and they call out to God for help. And God responds. God responds. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. In verse 24, we'll kind of work through God's response. First, Matthew Henry says, a work worthy of God, speaking of His deliverance here, His eyes which run to and fro through the the earth are now fixed upon Israel to show Himself strong 
to show Himself a God on their behalf. And so first, God hears. This is the first response of God. He hears. When the cry of Israel came to God, He heard them. He heard each one of them. He heard the cries of the little children and of the adults, of parents. He heard silent cries for rescue. He heard short cries, help. He heard long ones in the middle of the night when people woke up and considered their future. This is what my children are going to go through? This is my life forever? He heard them all. Not a single prayer slipped past Him. He is infinite and able to hear all who call upon Him. He heard them clearly and perfectly. For us, we can barely hear what people are saying. We can barely hear it. We need help. I was talking to my wife recently about getting a Christmas tree and one of my kids popped up immediately and said, we're getting a treat. And I said, no, 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 a tree. Oh, not a treat. Or one person is downstairs, the other person is upstairs and they're trying to communicate with one another and it ends up as just you yelling at each other from upstairs to downstairs because you're trying to talk through walls and everything gets in the way and we can't hear things clearly. We, we mishear people's you know, the tone of their voice and we take it the wrong way or their body language and we interpret it the wrong way. And there's just miscommunication everywhere. Not so with God. Not so with God. He's perfect in all He does, including in His hearing of prayer. Psalm 18.6 says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From His temple He heard my voice and my cry to Him reached His ears. He is never too far away. We are not too low or too small to cry out to God because He hears. He is not limited. The entire world, all 8 billion of us, could cry out to God at once and He would hear each one of those prayers distinctly and perfectly and know exactly how to answer each one of them. Wouldn't that be our desire that that would happen? And then He remembered. God heard and God remembered. He did something about it. It says that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now we have to do a little bit of a history lesson. Just go back to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There was a promise that God had made to the people of Israel, that He was going to act on their behalf, that He was going to do good for the world on through them, through the people of Israel. They are in bondage in Egypt, suffering, and Moses is forced to flee. It seems as though they've been abandoned, but they have not. God had a plan, a perfect plan, perfect timing, that He was going to act and deliver them from suffering. Now, this remembering does not mean that he went from not knowing or not thinking about them to thinking about them. Not so with God. It's, it's more so that God is going to act. It's how He communicates to us in Scripture that He is going to act. The same language is used in Genesis 8.1 with Noah. After the flood, it says in Genesis 8.1 that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. This communication of remembrance is an indication that God is soon going to move. He is soon going to act. And what do we see? 
If we were to keep reading in Exodus, the very next chapter, we see that now God goes and He calls Moses from the burning bush. And He prepares him and He sends him back. So the people cry out. God hears. God remembers. And now He acts. Why is it that He acts? Why, why does He do this? Does He remember and act because of something in the people of Israel? No. Our passage tells us that it's because of the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. It's God's promise. That's why He acts on behalf of the people of Israel. In Ezekiel 20, verse 7, he talks. God is communicating about why He brought the people out and why He chose the people. And it wasn't because of anything in them. In fact, He had to tell them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on. Every one of you, do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. So, He's acting because of His promises. Not because of any merit in the people of Israel. The same thing. When God saves a lost sinner, He doesn't respond to them because of the fervency of their prayer or because of how much they try to change or get their life in order. He saves because He promised that if you call upon His name, He will save you. He saves because of Jesus Christ. He saves because of what He has done. If God were to listen because of something in us, we would have no hope of deliverance. But we do have hope because it is God who is acting on His promises. And so He hears, He remembers, and God saw. The God who heard their cries for deliverance from slavery and the God who remembered His promises, He saw the people. Moses went out and he saw tiny slices. He saw one man here. He saw two men there. God sees them all. In the very next verse, it says, or excuse me, in the next chapter, in verse 7, it says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Matthew Henry again, his says, his eyes are now fixed upon Israel to show himself on their behalf. So he sees them and he knows them. You could also, you could put here, he knows or loves. He loves them. He truly does. He loves His people. He takes special notice of the people. He's full of love and He will do them good. Well, I would add one more. He is the God who sends. He's the God who sends. Pharaoh's daughter choosing... Excuse me, I left out a, my quote over here. He sends Moses. In Hebrews 11:24 through 26, it says of Moses, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses went out because God drew him out. And when Moses fled to Midian, it's because God sent him there to continue to prepare him to deliver the people of Israel. And he called to Moses from the burning bush and used him mightily. Still though, Moses is not perfect. He is not eternal. He is not the one who can ultimately save. Moses points forward as the Old Testament does. It points us forward to the promised one who is to come. 
Moses' first actions on the scene remind us that we need someone greater to deliver us. And someone greater than Moses has come. As great as Moses was. He was a great prophet. Hebrews is talking about that, that you had Moses, but now Christ has come. And that one who came, the the one that Moses is pointing forwards to, that great deliverer is Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the Savior of His people. He's the one who came to take away the sins of the world. We're in this Christmas season. Perhaps you're doing an Advent devotional at home, anticipating that celebration of moving forward towards the birth of Christ. As we celebrate that, we remember it. Galatians 4, 5, 4, 4 through 5 tells us, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We need redemption. We need deliverance. How is this to happen? Deuteronomy 26, verse 8 gives us this picture. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terrors and with signs and wonders. We sang, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners. That's what we see here. Desperate people. Ruined sinners. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Ruined means that we're completely desperate, bankrupt, empty. We have nothing to offer, nothing to attempt to free ourselves from bondage. Like the people of Israel, all we can do is come to an end of ourselves and cry out. The amazing thing is that He hears and He sees and He remembers and He knows and He sent Jesus Christ. He never changes. Sin came into the world through the one man's disobedience. The many were made sinners. But, again, that one that is being pointed forward to, Jesus Christ, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis wrote them. And in my favorite uh, book in the series, you have The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There is a character that I relate with a lot. His name is Eustace. If I remember his last name, I think it's Scrub. And he doesn't get along with anyone. He's extremely judgmental. He never listens. He's off keeping a record of wrongs committed against him the entire time. Apart from Christ, this is me. And he finds a dragon's hoard on an island. And he goes in, he's exploring, and he takes some of the gold from the dragon's hoard, he puts it on his arm, and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he's turned into a dragon. And now this gold that is on his arm, it is burning him, and it hurts, and he is in pain. And he realizes that he's becoming like a dragon. And he wants to be free, and during this time, he kind of sees himself for the mon- as the monster that he is. And then Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure in the story, he shows up. And he says, he takes him to this pool and he says, your wounds will be soothed if you can go into this pool, but you must remove the scales first. So Eustace says, okay. And so he tears off the scales off his arms and they're on the the ground. And then he goes to get in the pool and he looks back and they're they're right back where where they were before. So he does it again. He tears them off. He tears them off and he goes to get in the pool and they're back. And he does it over and over again. And finally, he realizes that he can't save himself. 
Aslan says to Eustace, you will have to let me remove them. And Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. It felt like his claws pierced to my heart. And Aslan is actually able to remove the scales. And now Eustace is back to the boy that he was before and he's taken by Aslan. He's put in the cool of this pool and he is refreshed. And then Aslan gives him new clothes. He changes him completely. Well, as wonderful as I think that picture is, it pales to the reality of what Jesus Christ accomplishes. He washes us white as snow. He's obedient on our behalf. He clothes us with righteousness. He liberates us from bondage. He takes us out of the dominion of darkness and brings us into the kingdom of light. He advocates for us before the throne of our Heavenly Father. He bears the wounds that brought us peace with God. He was cut off from the land of the living that we might be brought near to our Heavenly Father. He is Jesus Christ. He is our risen Savior and Lord. He is the only way by which men can come to God and have peace with Him. And you must come. You must see that like Israel, you are in bondage to sin, that you stand condemned before God because you've broken His law, because you were created for communion with Him, because you were created to obey Him perfectly. You must call out to God for deliverance. And the wonderful truth is that Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb, is not only a man like Moses, great as Moses was, but he is very God of very God. He is eternal and all-powerful and he sets prisoners free from sin. There's a phrase, I'm sure you've heard it, let go and let God. I'm not a big fan of it. I would say rather to you, cling. Cling like Jacob wrestling with God. I will not let you go unless you bless me. I will not let you go. Cling to Jesus like a drowning person who's thrown a life preserver. You know that is your life. You're not getting out of the waters unless you have Jesus Christ. You have to have that life preserver. You do not have to wait either. The people of Israel were liberated about a year after this takes place. God is working and acting. You do not have to wait. You can come to Him today. Jesus Christ came and already He died. He died that sinners might come to Him. He will save you today. You call out to Him today, you will be saved today. You will be saved today. You can receive eternal life, the free gift of God. But if you refuse, if you say, that's not for me, I, I don't see it. I don't, I don't see it. I'm not enslaved to anyone. I'm doing just fine. Well, that same strong and mighty outstretched hand of the Lord that works salvation does mark you condemned. Do not reject so great a salvation as this. It is free. You can be set free. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. It's only Jesus' blood. Only Jesus' righteousness. These are what can make you right with God. So, we anticipate If you are in Christ, you are anticipating a better life, a better future when you will see Christ face to face. You will see Him and you will be like Him. The remaining sin that we are all fighting will be gone. 
And while we walk, we anticipate. We want to be like Him. And so we seek. We say, You are my Lord. I want to be like You. I want to obey You. And praise God that He gives us His Holy Spirit and works in us. And we long for His return by faith. We long for His return that we will see Him again. Be filled with joy. You came to God groaning. All sorts of different personalities. All sorts of different personalities. People come to God, but you were groaning over your sin. You knew that there was sin in your heart that you cannot save yourself from and you came to God. And now you stand in Christ joyful and free because your sin is forgiven and you have peace with God. He is your Father. What could be better than that? May we all be found in Jesus Christ on that day. Let's pray.